Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and today we're joined by HKS adjunct lecturer Jay Rosengard, who serves as faculty chair of the Kennedy School's Indonesia program out of the Ash Center. Professor, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So uh, for those who aren't familiar with Indonesia's history, uh, can you explain how it, it, it's of course a democracy now, but that's only been true since 1998. Can you explain that history? Uh, uh, br- briefly, Indonesia was a Dutch colony for hundreds of years and became independent in 1945. And then for most of its um, history as an independent country, it was under the rule of two people, Sukarno, the founding president, and Suharto, the person who succeeded him in a uh, essentially military coup. And it wasn't until 1998, during the East Asian financial crisis, that um, Suharto resigned, May 1998. And since then, Indonesia has made a remarkably um, relatively peaceful transition from authoritarian rule to competitive democracy. And at the same time, against all the odds, has undergone an ambitious decentralization program in a dispersed archipelago with many religions, many ethnicities, and with a history of provinces trying to break away. So um, it's now at a crossroads. Its democracy is maturing. And um, a little bit of of background also, the current American ambassador to Indonesia, uh, Robert Blake, says it's the world's biggest country Americans don't know about. Um, It's the fourth largest country in the world. Mm -hmm. It has a $1 trillion economy. It's a member of the G20. It's the third largest democracy and the largest Muslim majority democracy. So it's a country that we should really be paying attention to. It seems democracy uh, is especially, uh, uh, it must face interesting difficulties in a country that has 1,300 islands, countless languages, countless uh, cultures to unite. Yeah, and the problem that that countries have found in Southeast Asia is what I call co-opted democracy. It has the form of democracy. It looks like it's having competitive elections. But um, in countries like Thailand, for example, um, the substance isn't there. And even Malaysia is not listed as a democracy in, in, in many um uh, by many institutions that, that monitor this. And so the, the challenge is how do you make it really participatory and competitive um, and still get anything done? It's very difficult. Mm-hmm. So uh, in late 2014, uh, Indonesia had an election and elected a brand new uh, president. Can you tell us a little bit about him? What's it, Is it just an election or is it something that's really uh, more than just a new president? Well, the new president, Joko Widodo, his name is Jokowi, commonly. Um, it's, it's remarkable. And many people compare his election to Obama's um, election. He's an ordinary guy from a mid-sized city in central Java, small-scale furniture manufacturer, retailer. He rose up through the, local, through the ranks of local government. He was a mayor of Solo, then the governor of Jakarta. And he's the first president since the fall of Suharto, not connected to Suharto's new order oligarchs, He's not ex-military, and he's basically the consummate outsider. And he ran against the consummate insider, um, Prabowo, who was an ex-general, ex-son-in-law of Suharto. Um, And Prabowo did get 47% of of the vote. So it was a a closely contested, fair, open election. And Jokowi didn't even have 
the full support of his own party, something called PDIP. And so he resorted to a lot of volunteers, crowdsourcing, really grassroots, bottom up. Mm -hmm. Again, sounds familiar. Um, and he's basically the anti-politician. He's not especially good looking. He's not a very good public speaker. Um, but, and he has a high level of personal integrity. These are all unusual um, if you look at I, the candidates. I have to ask, why did he get elected? <laughs> um, he got elected because people wanted change. They wanted somebody who could deliver the goods. They were tired of the corruption. In Indonesia, they have a phrase, KKN. And you can be fluent in Indonesian. It's korupsi, kolusi, nepotism. And so they were tired of, of, of bad government, bad governance. And like I said, here's a guy from the outside. He didn't owe anybody anything, high level of integrity. And so you're thinking, um, yeah, why did they elect him? Uh, he has the potential to be a transformational leader. Mm -hmm. And his, his running mate, the vice president, again, if you want to com continue the comparison, is a guy named Yusuf Kala, who's a bit like Biden. He's a seasoned, well-respected politician, old enough to be his father. So you've got this young, outsider, transformational character paired with insider, respected politician. So, of course, uh, Obama came into office and had trouble getting a lot of his, uh, you know, domestic agenda accomplished, really. Jokowi, uh, is, he, is he facing the same problems? Yeah, and this is the peril of governance. Um, running for election is very different than governing. And his opponent, Prabowo, actually has a majority coalition in parliament. Jokowi has a minority coalition, so he has a lot of pressure from within his coalition. He's got pressure from the opposition. Um, and again, like the United States, I think there's an exaggerated perception of presidential powers and um, underestimation of the strength of parliament, especially when you're a minority and that minority is actually not one party but a collection of parties. Um, so yes, the... Um, the threat when you have very high expectations, maybe unrealistic expectations, and you have an opposition that hasn't really um, accepted the verdict in many ways. Um, j just one example, in the very last hours of the, the previous administration, this opposition coalition changed the local election laws and basically went from direct election of local government officials to parliament, local parliament appointed officials. Can you actually take us back? Why did that even come to pass? And what is the reaction then? Uh, well, it, it came to pass because uh, this opposition coalition controls all of the local legislatures except two provinces. Mm -hmm. And if they had the authority to appoint local officials, Jokowi would have never gotten where he is. He would have never been mayor of Solo. He would have never been governor of Jakarta. So it's partly to prevent the rise of other outsiders like Jokowi and partly to cripple um, implementation of a lot of his policies because under decentralization, local governments are very, very important. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of a uh, a way of saying you might have won the executive branch in the central government, but we're going to make sure you don't get very much done that makes you look good, which should bring another 
similar parallel to um, the United States. So it seems like there's competing news here. There's good news in that there's a somewhat transformational candidate who's won the presidency, but in a long-term way, that kind of uh, you know the upstart candidate is being quashed. Looking in from the outside, do we look at this as a good thing or a bad thing for Indonesian democracy? Well, um, there's a, a, a bit of a, a, a happy ending to the story. Um, there was a tremendous backlash from mm-hmm. the people. It was a very, very unpopular decision to go backwards and take away direct election of government, local government officials. And so the former president, again, in the very last hours, issued something that's like an emergency decree that, that um, delayed implementation of this uh, amendment to decentralization mm-hmm. law. And it went to parliament. And it, it was um, eventually, um, when you, it, it's a little bit like a veto that you have to sustain. So when he issues this decree, it goes to parliament. Parliament um, upheld um, this decree. So local elections are back. And now they're redrafting the law to um, accommodate some concerns. Mm-hmm. So popular backlash put tremendous pressure on the former administration and the opposition coalition. And it w- really was not tenable to try to maintain that position. Um, but looking to the future, as, as you said, um, there's, a, there's a real struggle for power mm-hmm. right now within the party and between the party and the opposition coalition. So what can Indonesians expect from Jokowi going forward? Well, there was um, a very recent case um, that kind of highlights all of the uh, perils of governance that that you've um, mentioned. And this was, there was tremendous pressure um, on Jokowi to nominate um, a gentleman, Budi, as head of the national police. And the the police in Indonesia are not local government. They're they're, um, essentially another branch of the military. Mm -hmm. And this guy was under investigation by the Anti-Corruption Commission. After he was nominated, they named him as an official suspect which means that um, in the U.S. it would be like being indicted. After they named him as a suspect, the parliament approved the nomination, again, to make the point that you think you're in control, but maybe you're not. Mm -hmm. And again, a tremendous backlash, popular backlash. The police are probably the most unpopular government institution, and the Anti-Corruption Commission is probably the most popular. So in Indonesia, it's been in the headlines, it's been all over the media, and they call it um, Chicha Lawan Buaya, which means the gecko, the Anti-Corruption Commission, versus the crocodile. And they're in this kind of uh, amazing fight. Eventually, uh, just about a week ago, Jokowi withdrew this guy's nomination Mm -hmm. and nominated the deputy um, right now as his new police chief. So Mm -hmm. I think you're going to see... Um, in the short run, this this um, conflict, this test of wills between the new guy from the outside and the oligarchs from the inside who really don't want to lose their, um, their privileged positions. Mm-hmm. We don't know how it's going to end, but I think the key for Jokowi is to do kind of like he did when he was governor, which is to look for some very quick, highly visible wins. 
try to increase his credibility, strengthen his own coalition. Mm -hmm. And in Indonesia, if people think you're on the winning side, they tend to defect to your coalition. So Mm -hmm. then he would have uh, a majority in Mm -hmm. parliament. And so far, he's trying to replicate what he did in his short tenure as governor of Jakarta. He's emphasizing investment in basic enabling infrastructure. There's a huge backlog. Mm-hmm. And he has placed a high priority on social sectors and social protection like health and education. So he's he's making the right move. He's got tremendous political pressures, um, very high expectations. Um, the hope is that he will put together a team, and people are expecting within the next six months a cabinet reshuffle. Mm-hmm. Um, and he can put a team in place that will really help him navigate the political waters and achieve um, the objectives um, that he campaigned on. He has a five-year term ahead of him. It's, it's, the national elections are every five years, mm-hmm. so it's not like the U.S. where parts of it are, are elected every two okay. years. So it's a five-year cycle, mm-hmm. and there's a two-term limit. So should okay. he um, enhance his political strength and accomplish at least part of his very ambitious agenda, um, then he could he could achieve within the first five years a, a majority in parliament as a coalition shift mm-hmm. and could run for re-election. So there's a 10, potentially 10-year 10 window of opportunity um, to take advantage of, of Jokowi's presidency. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we think right now that Indonesia is very much at a crossroads. These opportunities don't come along very often. Mm-hmm. Um, and sh- as I said, should he be able to capitalize on it? That's that's a decade. Do you think that they're gonna, there are going to be fundamental reforms beyond just you know kind of fixing infrastructure and building up political will? Are there, there going to be uh, more fundamental changes that happen as a result of this? That's the hope. I mean, fundamental reforms in the way government does its business mm-hmm. and the way the government um, relates to the private sector in Indonesia. Uh, we we. Um, we, we did a study, the Harvard Kennedy School Indonesia program did a study about a year ago looking at the basic or the binding constraints to development in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. And Indonesia has been doing okay. If you look at the numbers compared with other countries, you know, growth has been positive even through the global recession, mainly because they're rich in commodities and they've been taking advantage of old industries. But mm-hmm. we had said that they really do need fundamental structural reform including significant investments in its human resources, um, as well as improvement in governing and governance and investment in enabling um, hard infrastructure. And he's moving in that direction. He needs the quick, short-term wins to be able to make the longer-term systemic reforms that will really put Indonesia on a different development trajectory. Well, Professor Jay Rosengard, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast today. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast, produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Follow us on Twitter at PolicyCast. 